This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, The Mystical Positivist. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Michael Nagler, founder of the Meta Center for Nonviolence in 1982 and author of The Third Harmony, Nonviolence and the New Story of Human Nature. The Meta Center provides educational resources on the safe and effective use of nonviolence with the recognition that it's not about putting the right person in power, but awakening the right kind of power in people. The Meta Center advances a higher image of humankind while empowering people to explore the questions, how does nonviolence work, and how can I actively contribute to a happier, more peaceful society? As Professor Emeritus of Classics and Comparative Literature at UC Berkeley, Michael co-founded the Peace and Conflict Studies program. His previous books include The Search for a Nonviolent Future, A Promise of Peace for Ourselves, Our Families, and Our World, and The Nonviolence Handbook, A Guide for Practical Action. He is a student of Eknath Eshoran, who founded the Blue Mountain Center of Meditation, and he has lived at the center's ashram in Marin County since 1970. Michael Nagler, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you so much, Robin Stewart. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, we're delighted to have you, and we will begin um, with the initial question we ask uh, in our first uh, conversation with a guest, and that is to invite you to cast your mind back to youth and childhood. And um, in retrospect, if something comes up, point to an experience or experiences that you can uh, now say pointed you in the direction, um, in this case, of course, about um, nonviolence and your work with nonviolence. But we all, I also want to expand that to your, to your work um, with your spiritual teacher, your own spiritual practice. If there are any experiences from, from your early life um, that you would... Uh, Care to share with us? This is uh, almost causing goosebumps. I was just thinking this morning about experiences in my, my very early life, and I have to say that we're now going back a lot of years. But who's <laughs> but uh, I remember having some episodes when I was very young. Uh, like one time, it entered my head. I lived in Brooklyn. And, you know, we lived on these rectangular blocks and I lived on 29th Street and almost never saw anyone on 28th Street. That was a foreign country. Hmm. But I decided one morning to walk around the block and in the middle of the block on the other side, something hit me and I stopped walking and I said to myself, uh, don't ever forget this moment. Hmm. But, though I couldn't characterize it in any way. And uh, so then uh, I, I grew up uh, pretty much accepting the prevailing worldview that I was being fed by the media and by education. 
but it started to feel very wrong to me. One thing that happened in that period when I was in high school, I was part of what they call the VA squad, the visual aid squad. So I got to show films over and over again to different classes. And at one point right after the war, that's the Second World War in my case, um, the Second Army had released these films that they had captured from the Germans. And there were some really, really ghastly depictions of what uh, was being done to people and what the camps were like. And I had to show that over and over again. And it was in one way traumatizing, but in another way, it kind of shaped my mindset that I came away with this very deep feeling that this should never happen again to anyone. And so, but I grew up kind of, you know, without knowing how to implement that. Then fast forward, otherwise we'll be here <laughs> all day. Fast forward to uh, graduate school in Berkeley. I got very passionately involved with the free speech movement, which we really, really thought was the revolution. That, you know, this was, this was going to fix everything. This was it. And uh, so I threw myself into that very passionately, but I began to notice some very uncomfortable inconsistencies between what I wanted and what my uh, compadres wanted. Uh, like they were on one occasion, I remember with a standing with a really good friend of mine trying to get into Sproul Hall, which was the Citadel, the Bastille. And we <laughs> knocked on the door, which was locked and a uh, custodian inside waved us off, you know, as to say, okay, you know, it's locked, you can't come in here. I just turned around to, to go away, but my friend flipped him a very, very vulgar gesture. And, you know, that bothered me because he's just the custodian, you know, he doesn't have anything to do with this. And there was so much uh, anger and disrespect of persons that I was seeing that it, uh, I was not aware of it at the time, but a split was developing between the political and the spiritual. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a spiritual orientation and I really didn't fit in as well as I had thought. Mm -hmm. You know, with these people, we were manning the barricades together. We were facing risks together, uh, quitting classes and uh, facing all kinds of punishment, but uh, something was dividing us, and it was very, very painful for me. I, I do remember there was a critical meeting that the uh, Academic Senate, which at that time still had a lot of influence, very highly regarded, they were going to meet and kind of adjudicate on the conflict between us, the students, and the administration and the, and the regents. Mm-hmm. And we planned, this was Graduate Student Assembly, GSA, we had planned to disrupt that meeting. And I got up and I made two statements. The first statement was, you know, we don't know what they're going to say yet. Why should we disrupt them before they do something we don't like? Everybody thought, duh, you know, that never occurred to me. That was, yeah, that's very smart. So they decided that was right. That instead of protesting, they were going to just show up. 
And that, that turned out to be absolutely the right thing to do because in fact, that was the climax, the successful climax of the movement. The academics handed back to us with a vote of like 600 to 125 or something like that. And we came out of it triumphant and we would have lost all of that. <laughs> so yay, okay, 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 I'm showing up, smelling like a rose. But then my second thing was, besides, I said, you, we can show more power by, by restraint than by indulgence. Boo, no. So that was very clearly uh, a, a symptom of this split. And uh, then I had se severe disappointment about the free speech movement. And I also had a, a terrible dilemma in my personal life which was causing me a lot, a lot of anguish. And I began to feel not only that I wasn't happy, because, you know, I don't have to be happy now, I'm only 20X or whatever, but I was beginning to feel that I would never be happy. And that was devastating. So it was right at that point that a friend of mine came to our house and said, hey, there's this guy I know you're interested in meditation. There's this guy teaching meditation tomorrow on campus in the meditation room. Why don't we go and check him out? So Javier and I went over to, quote, check him out. And Javier never came back. Uh, I never went away. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, believe it or not, friends, that was 1966. And I'm still living in the ashram that was founded by that person, Eknath Ishwaran, who passed away uh, from this physical realm in 99. So that, in very brief, is a very long <laughs> life story. Now, just if I could one touch on the nonviolence part of it, I often trace this back to, first of all, the influence of my mother, who was a very kind person, made me feel bad about my unkindness towards preachers and people. So that was in the back of my mind. But one day, before I came to Berkeley, and when I lived in Greenwich Village, I was sitting on my motorcycle outside of Rienzi's coffee shop. <laughs> and uh, there was a car behind me parked, it was a convertible, radio was on, and they were broadcasting a civil rights rally in the South. Hmm. And somebody, which I was listening to with great interest, and one of the people, one of the participants in the rally came up on the podium and said, they beat up on us, why don't we beat up on them? And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, why not? And the person leading that rally, probably one of the famous leaders of the civil rights movement, but I don't know who it was at this point, he quietly said, because that is not who we are. And, you know, in a funny way, the book that we're going to be talking about is the fruit of that insight. That nonviolence, our commitment to it or lack of commitment to it, defines who we are, not, not just how we are in the world. So I guess the only other uh, critical moment I might flag here, and then you'll know as much about me as anyone does, <laughs> possibly including myself uh, is after I'd started meditating with Sri Ishran and it was uh, I had a lot a lot of hope in that process which 
has not been frustrated. It's been fulfilled. But he said to me at one moment, is still down there in Berkeley, he said, Michael, I'm going to take you out of politics. And, you know, I was okay with it, but it was sort of rather deeply shocked. And because politics was, you know, my life. And he said, I'm going to take you out of politics. And pause, and then he said, and when I put you back in, you'll be much more effective. Phew. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so I reinvented myself under his direction and carved out this niche, which, uh, uh, which is where I now live and, and operate in what's called principled nonviolence, or I ran across a beautiful expression by Gandhi uh, just the other day. I'd never noticed before, he refers to the inner meaning of Satyagraha. So it is that inner meaning which really characterizes what Satyagraha is and simultaneously what we are. Mm -hmm. So that's where I explore and try to learn and, and live, and that's my work. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So, um, so... I want to launch in in a moment to our discussion of your wonderful new book, The Third Harmony, Nonviolence and the New Story of Human Nature. But I have one, one little pressing um, a bit of curiosity. Um, uh, having also uh, gone to Berkeley, I'm wondering how your, um, I mean, it, you started off not in the piece that you you helped create as you as you uh, relate in the in your book you helped create the peace and conflict studies program at berkeley right. but before that you were a, a professor in the classics program as i understand it yeah i was uh, what they called it a split appointment uh, i like to call it a joint appointment <laughs> <laughs> maybe 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 that embodies something about the book too <laughs> yeah yeah, I, I was in uh, classics and comparative literature. That's right. That's right. Uh, literature, actually, and the fine arts uh, and living in the Bohemian area of Greenwich Village, really, I now look back on it as having saved me from American pop culture, mm, which is okay. really toxic and devastating. And, there were and pervasive. Pervasive. Boy, yeah. oh boy. Uh, you know, there were, there were, there's limitations to that kind of bohemian intellectual commitment, which I now recognize, but I, I am deeply grateful because it, it saved me from, uh, as I say, American pop culture. And as a matter of fact, uh, Eknath Ishran himself came from that environment. He was a professor of English literature, and he first came over here as a Fulbright scholar. Hmm. Yes, I, I recall reading that uh, many years ago. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I guess. Uh, so, my question is: To what extent did your? I mean, you have a, and, and uh, forgive me, I've never known how to say the name of Epictetus. Epictetus. I've never known. We say, usually Epictetus. We usually say Epictetus. Okay. So you have a wonderful quote um, uh, in in uh, the Third Harmony, um, which we can get into in a, in a bit, but. But um, but I'm wondering what um, what contribution your study of of the classics 
and literature, but besides the one that you've just pointed to here, if, if there was any contribution to your later developing uh, commitment to an expression of nonviolence um, in, in any way? Oh, yeah, that is an excellent question, Rob. Uh, I would, you know, I've, there's two things, I think. One was the, the mere fact of intellectual discipline, that, you know, learning Latin and Greek and French and German. Uh, it's, it's not like uh, one of your party games. At, uh, <laughs> you, you, not for me. <laughs> no. you, you've got to learn how to discipline yourself and stay concentrated. So that with that uh, almost uh, just mechanical part of it was very helpful. But beyond that, the fact is that a lot of the greats, like Epictetus and Plato, uh, meaning Socrates, and the great tragedians, they had um, they had deep insights into human nature, and they had a compassion a lot of the time for human nature, you know, with the literature that we are growing up with now, the pervasive literature is, as Ishwin once characterized it, a literature of alienation. Hmm. And this was a literature of striving for that spiritual breakthrough, striving for unity. Uh, and, and so that all helped prime my outlook to be ready. For example, uh, I, I used to haunt, when I lived in New York City, I used to haunt the 4th Street bookstores because you could pick up a book for 18 cents there and uh, get engrossed in it for a couple of weeks. And I think three times I picked up the Confessions of St. Augustine because I knew that it was quote, an important book. He's an important thinker in the West, and I just jolly well better know what he said. But I could not get into it. I picked up uh, a translation of the Upanishads, because I kind of sensed that they were important, but I couldn't get into them. And I later found out it's because, A, I wasn't ready, and B, those translations were lousy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so... In other words, they were they were building a platform. I, I sometimes feel that my whole life was very systematically taking me in this direction, though I I rarely was aware of it. Well, that that accords with my own experience of my own life as well. Looking back in retrospect, um, and um, I don't know if that's because of uh, you know the the discipline of spiritual practice over over decades. Uh, I but I suspect there's something to that. So that's as a well. that's a nice lead into the uh, book, the Third Harmony, because um, there there seems to me when I when I was reading through that there seemed to be two major threads that were uh, uh, similar and different, but uh, they seem to compose the major pillars of the work. And one is this notion of the Third Harmony, which we'll get into, and the other is the notion of the New Story. And I was particularly interested because your earlier comments really uh, underscore this about the notion of the third harmony, as I understood it, and I'd like you to elaborate on this, is 
uh, realization that to be effective in the world politically, to create change in a way that conforms with the vision we might have requires an interdiscipline or an inner work that is often uh, uh, missed in the kind of the fury of, uh, you know, uh, political movements. And, and of course, we're seeing that today. I mean, we can just turn on the news and absolutely everything you were writing, even last year, is <laughs> prescient for, you know, six months later. So, so, so maybe we could start with the uh, idea. Uh, if, I mean, if you want to speak about the book in general, in terms of what you were trying to do, that that's great. But I, I want to dive into the notion of the third harmony and what what you see with that. Uh, that is a perfect starting place, uh, Stuart. And if it were not, we'd be in a certain amount of trouble because that is the title. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not only of the book, but of the larger project, which we could talk about in a, in a bit. But yeah, it's this idea that uh, the mystics in various ways refer to that we need to establish harmony in three realms. Uh, harmony with... Uh, the planet, or in some cases, they say harmony with the universe, and harmony with living beings, uh, especially of our own kind, humans, and then thirdly, harmony within ourselves. So that's the third harmony, but it's a third harmony where we really uh, touch the, the leverage points, the level where we can make a difference. And as you were just saying, it's, a, it's almost a truism, but it's true. <laughs> some, some truisms are actually true, that we can't make peace in the world without first having made peace in ourselves. I like to put that a little more positively and say that the resources we need to change the world are embedded within us. The reason that people are frantic and looking for it in the outside world is again because of this prevailing story, the old story that we are basically empty and fulfilled <laughs> from stuff outside of us. Yeah. But it's funny, so when you said that the book ties together two threads, I was enthusiastically agreeing with you, but I have two different other threads in mind. One, one was the new story and the other was nonviolence. So in practical terms of you know what I was trying to think through, and also in social terms, because there are two communities out there, one working on nonviolence and the other working on the new story, which are not talking to one another. Mm. And my strong feeling for a long time is that they're they don't they're not complete without the other. Right. So if the book accomplishes nothing else, if it gets a few people from let's say Pindhorn or the Center for, Center for Mind, Contemplative Mind and Society to talk to some people in Nonviolent Peace Force and uh, the Pachabani con uh, campaign nonviolence, that itself will make us more effective. But at a deeper level, it's recognizing that these are just two different ways of focusing on human nature. Who are we as human beings? It's it's interesting that you draw that distinction because I think as I was relating to the book, I, as someone who's not 
firmly, I, I guess, uh, invested in I, either of those community, those kind of extremes. I, I, I was looking at it as about nonviolence, and here are two poles that need to be attended to. But, but, but what you describe is interesting because I certainly confront this in my own spiritual practice that when there's an intuition that we are largely consciousness and, and that the world that plays out in front of us is something like a play on a screen and that we are involved in that, but our aim and our practice is to be of the world and not in, uh, or in the world, but not of the world. That one side of that manifestation or that intuition is a ten tendency to retreat from the public domain. Yeah. And so I see the challenge on the side of the new story where uh, practitioners may tend to uh, affect a kind of isolation or just withdraw from the world and focus on uh, their vision uh, uh, and let the world do what it's going to do. Whereas in the world of nonviolence, there's much more of a commitment to moving into the world and, and trying to affect a, a larger vision for the world. And those, and it's interesting because I, I, how do you, how do you overcome the inertia of a spiritual uh, practice that tends to lead you away from the world, and how do you spiritualize a uh, activist practice that tries to take you into the world? Well, you may not be surprised to hear that uh, this is not a new question for me. <laughs> I, have to, uh, I have to, you know, come to my own balance there, and even here in the ashram where I live with my fellow meditators. There's a range of uh, balance in, in this balancing act that people carry out. So I probably am the one most directly engaged in social change. But uh, nobody says, not to my face, <laughs> that's wrong. <laughs> in, in some cases, they kind of regard me as a flag bearer for the whole community. So it's, a, it's an ongoing uh, balance. I, I, I do think that in the modern world today, it must be extremely rare for someone who, who wants to get within and have a spiritual practice not to be engaged in the world. I mean, if you look at it from the Vedantic point of view, uh, where there are four main yogas or paths, the path of wisdom, the path of devotion, the path of action, and the path of meditation. There's only one really, really prominent, outstanding figure, avatar, so to speak, who went all the way with the, with the path of action, and that's Mahatma Gandhi. And he lived in the 20th century. And before him, there was a person of, of comparable spiritual achievements named Sri Ramakrishna who lived basically his whole life in a little room which I visited last year mm, huh. <laughs> and, uh, and you know so some of the surrounding householder neighborhoods in Calcutta but uh, he himself was never involved in social action and discouraged people from talking about the oppression of British colonialism and I think that 
this is our times. In our times, the situation of the world has become so grievous that it is a very, very unlikely that a person of any spiritual achievements will want will not want to get passionately involved in changing that. So the, the dilemma then becomes how to do that without internalizing all that turmoil and negativity. So that is something that you have to work out on your own, on, and it's ongoing you know, on a daily basis. I, I was very struck by the remark of Thich Nhat Hanh, who invented, uh, founded what's called Engaged Buddhism, you know, Buddhists engaged in social action. And he was asked to define it one time. And he said, engaged Buddhism is Buddhism. And I would say that, you know, engaged Buddhism is Buddhism in the 20th and 21st centuries. You cannot contact that innate sense of compassion and fellow feeling with all that lives and then go out and look at the world and say, oh, well, you know, it'll take care of itself. So, I mean, that, that's, it's, uh, you know, my, I guess instinctively I want to agree with you. And, um, and yet if I, well, I mean, I do, I, I, yeah, I knock yourself well, out, but, but, but I, I guess I'm, I'm challenging myself with this. Uh, if I look at traditions, uh, in the, uh, as they manifested in past times, uh, there were horrific conditions facing people. Um, and a modernist would certainly argue that um, worldwide the poverty level has uh, gone up for most people, that uh, conditions are better than they have been, uh, uh, the, not, which isn't to say that it's not awful for some people. But uh, modernity has achieved some things for people and there are great risks obviously entailed with modernity but a spiritual practitioner like uh, uh, Sri Ramakrishna or uh, 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 Ramana Maharshi seemed to be concerned completely with a different context entirely and saw the phenomenal as a, uh, uh, a reflection of our inner work and so their focus was primarily on the inner work and they were certainly beings at a level that that inner work that they did radiated out and galvanized uh, hundreds of, you know, uh, probably millions of people in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I, 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 I ask is, I don't know that it's necessary uh, as a expression of spiritual practice to go out in the world. But if, but at the same time, I'd ask myself, well, why not? I mean, why, why not go out in the world? And uh, well, first, uh, that that was a very, very good uh, run-up, Stuart. I, I, I would first say that one of the things that we say about nonviolence at the Meta Center is that nonviolence is the bridge between spiritual development and social change. Mm-hmm. Because if you have any spiritual insight and you want to work on the world, uh, you, you you can only do that in a nonviolent modality. You can't go out there and defeat enemies if you're starting to realize that there aren't any enemies. And you can't let the hostility of the world 
disrupt your consciousness. Uh, so you need to have a, uh, you need to be able to bring the peace that you have found within into your relationship with others. Uh, you know, as to the improvements of the world, I think uh, some of that thinking uh, was publicized by Steven Pinker. And yeah. uh, uh, it, it actually, a lot of his data turned out to be wrong. And a lot, a lot of his interpretations of uh, pre-civilization societies uh, turned out to be one-sided or wrong. And anyway, even if everything he said was right, we now have a climate crisis, which is on track to destroy life on Earth. Uh, and that has never been faced by the human species before. So if there were nothing else, there is uh, also a pandemic, and there also is a racist violence and other forms of violence. But even if there were not, this is a catastrophe of planetary proportions because of the capacities of modern man, modern human being, we have misused those capacities yeah. to the point where we can now destroy life on earth. And, and we didn't have that capacity before. So we are challenged as never before in the history of this planet. So, uh, Still, uh, there are individuals like Ramana Maharshi, and there are probably God knows how many sadhus living in caves up in the Himalayas who are <laughs> trying to do it all through spiritual influence. And I'm not going to sit here and say they're wrong. It's not happening. I, there is a famous story about a, a sadhyagrahi, you know, a follower of Gandhi's, who went to Ramana Maharshi's ashram for a break. And uh, when he was leaving, there was kind of one unresolved question in his mind. And the Bhagavan could see that. And he said to him, you know, what's on your mind? However, you say that in Tamil. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the guy said, well, you know, I've had a wonderful time here. It's, a, it's extremely inspiring. But I'm wondering, with all that's going on in the world and all this tremendous upheaval, how you can just sit there. And Ramana Maharshi said, what makes you think I'm just sitting there? Mm. And he said, oh, ha, 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 silly me. But the fact is, he that was not an answer to his question. He was very unsatisfied. Well, he was one of the many Gandhians who came to America for the civil rights struggle. And one day, he was invited up to the apartment of one of the civil rights leaders, and on that guy's dresser, he found a picture of Ramana Maharshi, who was totally unknown in the West. And suddenly he realized that this man is influencing the world from his couch in Tiruvannamalai in South India, even though people don't know his name and don't read his, his works. So I'm not saying, and thank you for the correction, that there aren't people who can do that. But until you reach that state, uh, I think you can't, and I haven't reached it, so. Well, the point, the point that we seem to be struggling to uh, <laughs> get through the internet here is the point that whereas in past epics, spiritual practice had the luxury of being something that removed itself from the world, 
in today's world, because of the finiteness of the uh, the uh, Earth and the consequences of our outer civilization on the continuity of the Earth, that that produces a new demand for us uh, as spiritual practitioners. That's of a different character than simply going off and removing oneself from life to perfect and to work on one's inner self. Yes, and I think it may be a question of degree, Stuart, because you know, there still may be people who can make their best contribution from the cave in the Himalayas. But uh, I think because of two things, really, as you were saying that, it occurred to me, the, the dire... The, the world has become so externalized and so materialist that they don't tend to believe in the efficacy of spiritual influences. So I'm guessing that maybe what happens is you do emit these spiritual influences, but people are not sensitive to them and they don't land and do their work to the degree that they used to in previous ages. But that is speculation, but the, the fact is that nowadays, for people like us, at the levels that we are at, uh, it does not seem to be a realistic option to uh, just go into our contemplative space, period. Uh, Gandhi once said that all prayer is answered, but he said all genuine prayer is answered but for a prayer to be genuine three things have to be met it has to it has to be a selfless prayer you know you can't pray you know give me tell me who's going to win the next horse race uh it has to be done with a great deal of concentration more than most people can actually muster in today's scattered world and thirdly and finally you have to have some awareness, some inkling that the entity that you are addressing, that you are praying to, is within yourself, not up in the sky. So when those three things are met, prayer becomes a very powerful instrument. And that's a diff very different uh, understanding of prayer from the usual supplicative yeah. um, uh, perspective. Yeah, it's not just petitionary prayer. In fact, uh, in this sense, we're actually praying whether we realize it or not. There, There is a, a deep desire in us for the well-being of the world, and, and it, is, it is active in the world. I don't doubt that. I've had some inklings of experiences of that in my personal life. But uh, I think for most of us, effective action based on nonviolence is the best thing that we can do for ourselves as spiritual practitioners or as anybody really, and for the world. Yeah. I, I think the one sense that um, also comes out of your work is that nonviolence uh, and the practice of nonviolence is, can, can be realized in our immediate sphere it doesn't require us to go out and join a march. Uh, it, it's how we deal with our uh, immediate family. It's how we deal with conflicts in our work life and our social lives and things like that. And it's a, 
it's an intuition that actually is very profound because it changes and reorganizes the way that we respond to our lives in general. Quite so. I think Gandhi had this concept of Swadeshi, meaning localism, which had always been around as a kind of simple political slogan, buy British, don't buy British goods, buy Indian-made goods. But he interpreted it at a very deep level. And one of his basic discoveries in Swadeshi was that you must start working on the most intimate, most immediate circle that you can reach. But when you have uh, basically resolved a lot of the key issues on that circle, then your influence expands. And, and you see this in his political life when he comes back to India in uh, 1918, I guess. He, uh, no, 1916, excuse me. He, he, his main... Uh, Efforts are in Gujarat, his home state, and it's not until later when he reaches that development where he can really be an all-India uh, activist and politician. So, I mean, for people on a much smaller scale like myself, it does mean working on myself first and foremost. But when I have succeeded in eliminating some problems in myself, there will be a capacity in there that is aching to express itself in the outside world. First in those very intimate circles that you just described, Stuart, and, and those will, they will have an effect that will radiate out. But for some of us, it also is appropriate to operate on the social level, social sphere, but not by joining protest marches. That isn't, the most effective way to act today. So you, you yourself, of course, have founded something called the Meta Center. Um, maybe this is a, a, an opportunity to speak about the work that you've done and that you've invited others to do through, uh, through a modality like that. Yeah, any time is an appropriate time to talk about <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm clear now. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, it came about in a very wonderful way. Shriya uh, Shrin would sometimes have a very bad night being uh, kind of internalizing some of the grief in the world and not be able to sleep. And one of the first episodes of that kind, he called us all together, the whole ashram, the next morning and said, what are we going to do about the violence? Well, I was still teaching at Berkeley, still immersed in academia and the writing and thinking styles that go along with that. And so I, I, I said, well, why don't we start an institute? Uh, and we, we did. And that, but there were about five or six of us that were the core group that were running what eventually became called the Meta Center, and then the work of the ashram expanded and expanded and everybody else was taken away and I was left with it. And then in course of time, it became clear that some people who wanted to meditate were not of an activist persuasion. In fact, some of them were not even really progressive in their political orientation. And we didn't want to 
put a stumbling block in front of those people. Mm -hmm. So it became necessary and quite appropriate, uh, I think, and, for, and now looking back on it, became kind of liberating to cut Meta loose. So Meta was spun off, as we would say, from the Blue Mountain Center and no longer has any direct connection to it. But we do recommend in our five steps in that inner circle of the roadmap that pe people do take up a spiritual practice. And if they ask us, what do you recommend? We would recommend passage meditation because that's the one that we're familiar with. But so on the one hand, the entire inspiration comes from him. He met Gandhi so and was deeply influenced by Gandhi. So there was kind of a, in a way, a lineage, which is very powerful from Gandhi to Ishran and then in some sort of a trickle from Ishran to me that constitutes the orientation of the Meta Center. But what it enabled me to do was to become kind of an educational activist. Hmm. So I don't, uh, I don't, I haven't gotten arrested in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not that kind of activist, but I do find that I have given myself the leisure to really use whatever insights I've gained in meditation to explore the meaning of political activism from a spiritual progressive orientation. Spiritual pro progressive is a term that was developed by my friend Michael Lerner. And so that has given me this niche, which at first I was still trying to carry on partly through the university, but then that finally came to an unhappy divorce and, <laughs> and uh, so now that that's what meta center really does our mission is quote to help people practice nonviolence more safely and more effectively and so what the the book that we are leading up to talking about uh it's essential insight is that connection between nonviolence as a practice as it's understood both a personal and a social practice, and the entire shift of paradigm that the world needs to go through if it is to survive. And which actually suddenly looks doable with all the uh, turmoil that we're going through right now. Well, that's, there's a couple of questions that come into my mind from what you've just said, but, but maybe we should, we should start to adhere more, more uh, strictly to the book that, we're, that we've been talking around here for a while. <laughs> so, uh, so you just mentioned in what you just said a moment ago, roadmap. And I think that's a, that's a really important place that maybe would be an entry for our listeners uh, to start to understand what you're actually trying to accomplish with the book, The Third Harmony. So why don't you talk about the roadmap and what, what that means? Good. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'm slow. <laughs> I'm just just uh, using an old, old cliche. Rob. <laughs> No, uh, roadmap is a model that we developed at Meta. It was jointly by a lot of different people over a long period of time. And it's essentially a mandala, if you will. It's a, it's a circ uh, three concentric circles, which are meant to illustrate 
the evolution of uh, spiritual energy from the individual to the world. And, and we see it as progressing very naturally through three phases. The first, the inner circle, is about personal empowerment. And that's where those five recommendations come in. And then the next step as you turn to address the world without, what you should look for first is what Gandhi called constructive program. Look for ways of building the world that you want before you look to ways of deconstructing the present world, which you do not want. And then once you've done that, once you've gotten your own personal act together and maximized your personal strength and resiliency and creativity, and you've looked around for ways to, to build the institutions of the world you want to live in, like restorative justice and alternative peacemaking, alternative security, then you will find that it's relatively easy, or at least it's easier to overcome the oppressive structures that structures that still remain in society. So in a way that uh, puts the actual entry point of most people into political action today on its head, they're starting from point th number three, let's resist what we don't like. Right. And they wonder why it isn't terribly effective. Well, I'm not saying you should stop doing that, but I'm saying drop back for a bit, develop your own inner capacities, personal empowerment, look for ways you can build what you want, and then go out there and deinstitutionalize the police or whatever. So I'm, I'm writing a follow-up paper right now where I'm going to talk about how we could uh, complement the, uh, the anti-racist activities that we're carrying out now mm. with... Uh, activities that would tend to make people more aware of their interconnectedness. And uh, one of my uh, very good friends who teaches at Berkeley right now, uh, a black woman with a, with, you know, a history of slavery in her remote ancestry, she thought that this was a wonderful idea to do what we call a, a stealth action which instead of a confrontational one, mm. where we uh, enhance, elevate the awareness of human unity, and a lot of racism at manifestations would fall away naturally. And then we'd be in a very strong position to deinstitutionalize de the rest of them. But to go back to Roadmap for a second, so the other features of it are that roadmap is this circle is divided into six sectors, which identify six problem areas. And the top dead center, the main area that people should be working on is what we call new story creation. So that is what the book and the new project is all about to help to actually articulate what is the new paradigm that we want people to move to. What are its features and how does it differ from the prevailing paradigm? So, uh, yeah, we've been using Roadmap for quite a while and we're getting good responses to it. And I think it is helping people to orient themselves and get into action in a more satisfactory way than just going out and 
you know, lying down on the street, which has its value. Uh, but this enables us to get back into that, as you know, as Ishwin said to me, put yourself back in politics and you'll be much more effective. Well, thank you. So, um, so that's, um, that's, that's a very nice uh, uh, summary. By the way, I, I do want to make the comment that, that the thing I, one of the features I like about the book, The Third Harmony, is, is the clarity of its expression. And uh, uh, as a, an instance of that, the, the way that you bring stories illustrating the points you're making so skillfully. Uh, one of the things when you were just speaking that came to mind was a story towards the end of the book where you're, uh, I think it's a bus going across the bay okay. from uh, Berkeley to, to San Francisco, and you're list overhearing, as, as would be hard not to apparently, as we often uh, find ourselves doing, a conversation between two uh, teenage girls, and, and one of them says to the other uh, something like uh, the uh, um, discussing boyfriends, when I'm when I'm nice to the creep, then he then that seems to work much better than <laughs> the opposite, and yeah. and in a way, you know that summarizes an awful lot of your roadmap. Yeah. It seems yeah. to me, and that's the kind that's the kind of that's the kind of feature of the book because I want to make make this clear to our listeners that that it's this is not a this is not a, a tome that you um, have to wade through. Actually, your use of stories and the clarity of of the language that you use uh, is incredibly engaging, yeah. and is very um, inviting. I think to people who who may have absolutely no background in either spiritual practice or political action or or, or any or any such yeah. thing. Wow, thank you for saying that, Rob. It, it does make me feel a little bit like Margot Fontaine. Now, why do I say that? Because uh, she was asked one time, oh, you're such an effortless, natural dancer. You just get out there and glide. And she said, you have no idea the hours of torture that I went through mm -hmm. <laughs> in order to do that. And it's, it's so on the one hand, uh, re Reinventing myself from an academic writer was not at all easy. Uh, mm. And then enabled me to fall back on my years and years of teaching, which was very conversational. It was in seminars or small classes. Mm -hmm. because nothing I taught was ever <clears throat> popular. <laughs> um, but you referred to the use of stories, and that I partly got from my teacher, from Ishran. Mm. But it, 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 is, it does it illustrate the, the metamorphosis that I had to go through because those stories are known in the scientific and the pseudo-scientific world of literary scholarship as anecdotal evidence. And so it's, you know, they're not regarded as binding, but I think if you're looking for insight, statistics are not that significant and you can learn more from an aha moment uh, of insight where the reality kind of shows itself to you than from, you know, stacking up all of the, the studies and so forth. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's one of the things that, that I appreci 
appreciate about the book is that is that uh, I mean, for people, some of us of a certain age, we can remember uh, discussions of a new paradigm in the late '60s and '70s and subsequently, and um, and then uh, the insight arising, at least for me, later in the '80s and '90s about the power of narrative to mm-hmm. shape not just people's thought thinking, but actually their, their, um, uh, deeper emotional re- responses to, to how they, um, um, experience life and the, and their experience of the possible futures that they, that they can create. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that per- though, that, arc permeates this book um, with your discussion of uh, the new story, it seems to me. And that's really, a, that's a really important aspect of the book, it seems, to, uh, from my perspective. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I agree. It has to be a very important aspect of the book. And as you're saying that, Rob, it, it occurred to me that narrative is a kind of middle ground between spiritual realization, which in the ultimate uh, verge of it actually goes beyond words, and action in the material world and the social world, that in between comes that all-important issue of your model. What what are you going to see when you see the external world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, well, oh. I was just going to say that the... the on those lines, the what I, I found, just as a practical example, I found powerful that some of the stories that you relate, the anecdotes, as it were, of people, whether they were trained as non-violent uh, activists doing pe- unarmed, uh, uh, you know, citizen, citizen peacekeeping, or whether they were uh, someone who just happened to be a receptionist, you know, when a, uh, uh, a gunman comes into the room, you know. Those stories are serve as a kind of um, either allegory or uh, a mythical in the sense that they cause my heart to open uh, very specifically because and it's it's like a relating of a magical act because and it's magical in the sense that the frame in which I might normally think, which is a world of uh, separation and a world of uh, you know people as you know objects that are a danger to me from that from that point of view what you describe is magic because there's a transformation that is completely unexplained in that uh under that model and i think that that what that really does for a reader is to awaken the heart to another possibility which i think you then try to inform with the new story that's exactly what what I what the attempt was, Stuart. What I am trying to do, you know, present a, a flash of insight as it occurred to me, and then explain it, give give the background. Because like, uh, I've been very influenced by an ex- uh, a saying of a literary critic, William Empson, who said that the, my job as a critic is to fix impressions by naming them. Mm. You know, you you read something in a poem and say, ooh, that's nice. But the critic comes along and says, you know why it's nice? Because it's part of a structure that was initiated in the beginning of the poem and it leads to an image here. And 
Yeah, in a way that sanitizes it a little bit and takes away <laughs> from the immediacy of the experience. But in another way, it enables you to recognize the pattern. Yeah. And to see when an experience like that happens again. And it's because we do not recognize those patterns that people dismiss episodes of nonviolence. Yeah, in fact, you, you have a, a very funny anecdote from the Meta Center in the book that uh, when you look at the way the media uh, uh, presents nonviolence, it's basically violence plus nonviolence equals violence. <laughs> that, that It's like nonviolence is completely invisible to the uh, uh, popular media. And I probably because uh, violence tends to uh, get clicks and to uh, you know make headlines, whereas yeah, but it's I, if I'm interrupting, Stuart, I'm sorry, but there's that, but there's also another reason, and that's the one that the book is really addressing, trying to is that nonviolence, as you just said a while ago, doesn't fit into our paragraph paradigm. Yeah. It seems like magic, and so we've been trained to dismiss it. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That it's just, it just it doesn't exist. We don't see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we we're just not trained to see it because uh, uh, we uh, uh, because our minds are tuned to think of uh, other things. And and that, I mean that's another point that you make uh, that I think you alluded to earlier in the conversation about uh, critiques of Steven Pinker's work, and that's that. Uh, ancient societies, hunter-gatherer societies, had forms of restorative justice, had ways in which everyone had dignity and had expectation in the um, uh, community, and that was the way human, humankind lived yeah. uh, for uh, probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, and when we find evidence of violence in ancient societies as you point out in the with another anecdote in the book you know the the flag goes up aha you see we've always been that way when in yeah. fact we haven't been and and we don't need to be oh that's the, that's the real payoff that we do not need to be so it's not a question of trying to go back to the past and live in the past but it is a question of recovering things that were true and of value in the past and re-implementing them to fit into the present. One of them is certainly those conflict-resolving mechanisms. Another is the sense of unity that uh, individual human beings had with one another and with the surrounding environment, which you can still see in certain cultures that are closer to nature. So so you... you made a comment that was sort of an aside comment a, a moment ago that actually comes back to this point. And you mentioned that uh, uh, you found when Meta Center was more closely aligned with the uh, the spiritual center that you found some people might come who wanted to meditate and might not even be progressive in their disposition. That's right. and, and so that suggests that... Um, inner work is a part but not the full picture uh, Mm -hmm. because I can be a very skilled meditator and be very clear on the fluctuations of my mind but not necessarily still have a framework which allows me to see the world in a different way. 
Um, in the beginning, I think that's true. We did have a fellow came to our meditation <laughs> center for a retreat one time. His name was Bear, uh, and he was a, a, a Marine Corps sergeant. And so, you know, we typically would go around at the beginning of a workshop and say, what brings you here? You know, what are you looking to find? And he said, well, I, I have had moments of very deep concentration, but they're only when people are shooting at me. Okay. I, 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 you know, I'd like to be, a, but I, I think it is the case, Stuart, that as you progress in meditation, you will inevitably become more aware of your connectedness with others. I know my own personal experience, limited though it is, tells me that whenever I've had some kind of insight into something that's very real in me, that I know, I don't have to be told, I know intuitively that this exists in every single human being. Mm -hmm. That it's not my personal possession only. So as that goes on, you will develop intuitively more compassion and it would become less and less possible for you to espouse destructive policies. Well, just uh, what's coming up for me from, from the story you just related was this uh, um, about being shot at. Um, it, my teacher used to make clear that, that, um, that stress can shut down the discursive mind and that the experience of not having the operation of the discursive mind present is a, a very important um, part of part of the spiritual path. But I but but I do want to <laughs> emphasize the point that it doesn't have to be uh, literally your life being in danger like that. It could be for for, for me it, it's at a number of points. It's standing up in front of an audience and speaking or or uh in sports or or there's all kinds of ways in which in which um when we're subjected to and we subject ourselves deliberately to stress not, not too much stress but the right kind of stress that then we get some uh um we we understand that there are tools available to us and experiences available to us that will help foster the insight that you just pointed to about interconnectivity. Yeah. You know, in an earlier book, I, I did talked about an episode where I was playing basketball in Berkeley uh, at which I was none too good, but suddenly my team, three or four of us, we, we became unbeatable. I mean, we sank every shot. We caught every pass. We, we mm. dribbled circles around those people. And that lasted for about five glorious minutes and then went away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the, way, the way I look at meditation is trying to be able to find that place whenever we want to. Mm. So we're not dependent on being thrown back on our own resources by external circumstances, but we're able to be in touch with those resources on a basically permanent basis that that makes sense and and some of the stories you relate in the third harmony book about how people are confronted literally with guns 
in, yeah. in at least one one of the stories and and uh, and or other um, uh, potentially enormous threats to not just uh, the person responding but uh, you know I'm thinking of some of the peacekeeping uh, peacekeeper yeah. activities um, where um, outside a certain uh, uh, arena people are, are literally being killed it's like yeah. the the capacity to to face individual people and uh, and not surrender to objectifying them or yourself is mm. is 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 incredibly powerful yeah I, I have never been put in that kind of a of a existential crisis but um mm-hmm. uh, but but i know at least intellectually that that is the skill and if you have any confidence that you'll be able to do that it does take a lot of fear out of your life mm. Because you don't, you don't have to run around saying, oh, my gosh, what will happen to me if I get into this situation? You're saying, well, when, if I get into such a situation, I'm not going to put myself in one. But if I get into one, I'll do the best I can. And what, what else can I do? Yeah. Uh, well, one of the threads that runs through the anecdotes and really almost is like an essential feature of the nonviolence work that I saw was this notion of, the commitment to the dignity of the other or the dignity of the human dignity. And I'd like you to speak about that uh, because I think that that's a, such a critical and important message for us to be hearing as a community now. I, I, I couldn't agree more. So I'm surprised at myself that I haven't brought it up already, but uh, let me, let me get it, get at it this way. When Gandhi had this, big constructive program with 18 projects and uh of all of those projects one of them was outstanding one of them he called it the sun in the solar system of constructive program and that was charka uh, the spinning wheel it had many great advantages everybody could do it and i i won't go into all of them here so a lot of our search for formulating what we want to say at Meta has been a search for what would be the charka in modern life. And so far, we haven't come up with anything that's nice and concrete <laughs> and marketable, <laughs> like spun <laughs> cotton or spinning wheels. So we had to renounce that. But we're very happy now with what we did land on. And what we landed on was exactly what you were just saying to restore dignity to the human image. If I think everybody could get involved in that in every one of their relationships. And if we did nothing but that, that would be the core. That would be like uh, some kind of magical organizing ingredient that introduced into the world would tend to group other projects and other policies around it. But if you look at the policies that we now have, for example, a mass incarceration, they're built on the lack of dignity of the individual, hmm. and they crush the dignity of the individual. So one of the things we, we say at Meta is, look, you can do anything you want, solve any problem you want, provided that in order to do it, you do not degrade a human being. 
neither yourself nor anyone else. So uh, one of the features that makes nonviolence recommend itself is precisely that it ennobles and dignifies the person offering it and the person or persons to whom it is offered. And uh, there was a book uh, some years ago by Walter Conser where he collected stories about the American Revolutionary War period and showed that for the way many historians look at it, the Revolutionary War was not necessary, that they were going to have independence without a war. Mm. And that would have given us a very different country than the one we're living in right now. But then, as now, there were people who didn't believe you could do anything without violence, so it had to be by a war. But one of the things that one of the revolutionary leaders, one of the founding fathers said, was that in a cause so dignified, we will not resort to violence. Mm. That's, yeah. a, that's a sweet thing. I mean, what, the, other, the other half, if, it, if you will, of the, of the discussion in the third harmony of, of uh, dig, according dignity um, is, is the avoidance of humiliation. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and it, that point struck, so, struck me so forcefully because in my own, my own family, I, 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 even people, you know, incredibly loving people in my, in my family who, um, in retrospect, I could see, you know, it's like, like uh, when, they're, when they were in a, in a hospital situation at the end of life, um, I think some of the ways in which um, the medical system um not intending to no. but actually humiliates yeah. uh, patients is just so it it elicits in in the case of uh, this particular aunt of mine that i'm thinking of it elicited um um humiliation and the um powerful rejection of that possibility, but that got in the way of, you know, that can get in the way of, of the enhancement of health in that, in that particular case. Absolutely. I, I think from, you know, a lot of the, my immediate family members are in the medical world. And uh, I think that's improving that uh, mm-hmm. most care providers, maybe I'm only talking about California, okay? But most healthcare providers are learning that they have to be aware of the, the the human being and not a collection of organs yeah and uh that that's part of the paradigm shift i i, I agree with you and and um uh, I, I i didn't mean actually to focus just just on that because uh, uh, I, perhaps it's my particular family um uh, karma, but that was that was a that was something that I saw as as deeply affecting, um, especially my father's family, and um, and so you know different people have uh, greater sensitivity, I think, to um, humiliation. But um, but but the uh, the wonderful thing about the book is your is is the recipe for um, offering dignity and. Um, 
and, and focusing and the, on that positive aspect. And, and the transformative power when we do that, wow. that, that the, some of the most extreme situations when the person, uh, the, uh, the apparent perpetrator was just shown dignity yeah. and shown, you know, it wasn't that their actions were condoned, but they were, they were shown and they were related to as a being that, that, that transformed the whole situation. Yeah, well, that was the whole point in a nonviolent approach is to be able to see the action as separate from the human being. Uh, if I, you know, uh, the Third Harmony book is part of a larger project which involves a film and a board game and a media campaign. So the film is going to be out next month. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it has the same title Third Harmony, Nonviolence and Human Nature. And the board game, uh, I have actually a physical copy of it here, which is a beta test. It's going to be out soon. And in the film, there's a, we're working with some animators, and they came up with a logo, if you will, for the film. And mm -hmm. that logo is the two hands of nonviolence. And one of the people we interview in the film is Ken Buttigan, who, who got this from Barbara Deming, and I get it from Ken, that in nonviolence, you're, you're always saying on the one hand, I will not put up with your injustice. But on the other hand, you're always saying, I am open to you as a human being. So the last part of the book is really all about what would that look like in practice. And the film is very largely about how, what kind of a transformation that makes. And in, in the book, I have this quote from Arnold Toynbee, the British historian who explained why Gandhi was successful in forcing them out of India. And he said, he made it impossible for us to go on ruling India, but he made it possible for us to leave without rancor and without humiliation. And, and that is not, you know, even on the strategic level, so overlooked in in modern activism so both on the strategic level and on the deeper deeper level of changing the paradigm that is one central thing that we should grab hold of and so that becomes one central element in redignifying human image which is kind of you know the, the sun for our particular solar system and our constructive program yeah well i'm, I'm... It reminded of you know situations uh, of uh, even in my immediate sphere of conflicts where if you lead with seeing the other person and treating them as a being that uh, uh, it's a, such a different conversation. I mean, some of that is starting to f uh, uh, filter into even the corporate world in terms of how yeah. how, how do you effectively uh, engage people and uh, empower people. You do it by seeing them uh, as entities, and then and then uh, supporting their growth, as opposed to uh, telling them they're wrong and that they need to change. There's uh, among many ways I try to bring this out. Uh, one of them is this anecdote about a Jewish man who was uh, being spoken to by a former white supremacist who started, you know, being very confessional about what he had done. And this person, Tony, said, 
well, that was what you did. That is not who you are. I see who you are. Yeah. That is, as I say, both, let's say, philosophically and strategically, very, very powerful. Yeah. I mean, there was there was also the anecdote you had uh, from the uh, 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 lunch counter sit-ins. Uh, uh, maybe you could relate that, where, uh, because I... yeah, that's that's, a, that's a film in the film too. Yeah, this okay. happened with a good friend of mine, and when I heard about this, I called him and I said, "Come on, you got to come over here and tell me that story." And that was years ago, and so it now features both in the book and in the film. Uh, he was uh, sitting in at a lunch counter. He's twenty years old. Been sitting there for two days, meditating on loving your enemy. And you can imagine the the abuse and the physical punishment. Was and, th- and just to say, you know, this is in the civil rights uh, in the, in the South. In the correct, it yeah, is, yeah. It, in uh, it is in Arlington, Virginia, in 1960, I believe. Wow. And uh, so a guy came up behind him with a stiletto, and said, "Get out of here in two seconds, or this is going through your heart." And as as David said, uh, you know, I had two seconds to decide, <laughs> do I really believe in nonviolence? And uh, you know, he, he looked the fellow in the eye, which was not easy, because he was, was such a hate-filled expression. And he said, friend, you do what you feel you have to, but I'm going to try to love you. And the guy was so stunned that he his hand dropped and he turned and walked out of the store and some people said they saw him crying on the way out which is not uncommon when you are confronted by a nonviolent opposition uh, so the simple act of and I have to do this in two seconds yeah coming from some instinct to give him I uh, give him agency you do what you feel you have to not I'm going to prevent you from doing this. It's wrong. But you, you, okay, you want to do that? You do it. But my response, you can't take away my response. My response is to try to love you, no matter what. So, uh, yeah, that is a very, very good illustration. So, in the, uh, uh, you know, we talked about the new story sort of in uh, larger terms. Maybe, Maybe we can... Uh, go a little deeper in what you mean by the new story and and how this can serve as the spinning wheel for the modern nonviolent movement. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, there are variations on how people articulate it, but I think there are some basic features in common. If you start from the physical description of the the, the physical universe, you have to say that this is a universe which is based on consciousness, not on matter. And this is the great discovery in the very, very early years of the 20th century that, you know, led to quantum uh, reality and, and kind of that's where one started part of the story really started. But then the other critical features are to recognize that we are evolving spiritual beings as a friend of mine from Sebastopol likes to put it, uh, meaning that we are agents. We have an active capacity to 
shape our own destiny and that uh, our destiny must be in some way, shape or form to acknowledge, to recognize and to act upon the our sense of interconnection with other life, with other beings. And, you know, Howard Thurman has put this very, very well, that we, we are not ourselves until we realize that we are part of the whole, kind of paradoxical. So it's to realize that, that we have, we are body, mind, and spirit, and that spirit has been neglected and must not be neglected anymore. To realize we are all deeply interconnected with the whole web of life, and to realize, and this is a point that I haven't mentioned yet, that life has meaning, has a very profound meaning, and that each of us has a way of enacting that meaning in his or her own uh, corner of the universe. And that to do so is the realization, the fulfillment of human destiny. So those, I guess, are the key elements. I, I have sometimes expressed it a little bit more elegantly than I just did, but, <laughs> but you know, those are the four or five main features that I think we should all be able to agree on mm-hmm. and then articulate the, the flesh out the story from there and then figure out how to tell it. So what form, what forms of telling, you know, have, do you see as being effective and how does this, how does this story get out yeah. such that it begins to infiltrate the common thinking of people in many different cultures? Well, that's what the Third Harmony Project is about. These are, you know, four, four different modalities to get the story out into the world. And in addition to that, there is action. You know, you, you can enact the story without even telling it. Like, you know, what David Hartso did. He said, he in effect said, you and I are both human beings. So we're both valid. We, we each have our point of view. He didn't articulate that. I'm saying in order for the change to happen fast enough, we should be able to do both. We should be able to say, this is why I'm interested in your welfare. Because the welfare of one human being is not separable from the welfare of another, the welfare of the whole. So it's a combination, I think, Stuart, of enacting and describing. And I think that this has to be done consistently and repetitively because it's such a new idea. And we all know this from advertising. <clears throat> the first time they tell you that this is the greatest product you ever heard of, it'll change your life and make you free if you buy this particular kind of toothpaste. That the first time you hear that, it doesn't make any sense. That the third time you hear that, you say, oh, yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> so... Uh, that's how the that's how paradigms shift. The first, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. <laughs> Perseverance, I guess, is what one point you're making here. Perseverance with compassion and with uh, confidence. You know, you have to mm. really, really be grounded that you really believe this. Yeah, you've tried it out and it works. And then you say it calmly and compassionately whenever you have a chance. And I look back how in the very early years when I was first getting involved in the spiritual life, I was terrible 
I was blasting away at people and I did everything wrong. And one of the things that was to start with the most challenging and thrust it in people's face. But you don't do it that way. You, <laughs> you find out how to valorize the person or persons you're talking to and how to reach them on their level and bring them, bring them toward your point of view. But you never retreat from your point of view. You, you don't make that uh, compromise. Well, I, I think the point you just made about uh, building confidence in your capacity to, to do all this yeah. is, is incredibly uh, key here. You know, the, 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 um, uh, the, that's certainly one of the things, as I look back on my own um, spiritual um, path, is that I started off incredibly um, self-deprecating, worse than self-deprecating, self-critical, etc. And, and to find things that are reliable in one's experience of oneself and one's relationship to the world is, is, um, is very um, ennobling. Uh-huh. And, and that's, that's what I'm hearing, hearing um, is a key ingredient as well. Yeah. You know, I, I've been in spiritual life for almost, well, for half a century now. And so I've had innumerable little uh, opportunities to test these realities, mm-hmm. push my own boundaries, be kind to a person who is annoying me. And uh, I just tested it in experience so many times on my own small scale, of course, so that it's not a question of what you might call faith anymore. It's a, it's a question of experience. I've known it to work. Right. The, and uh, one of the other things that, that, um, that really resonated for me in the book, I, m- I mentioned uh, the quote that you have from Epictetus. And it's, uh, it's, it's you know, uh, at the beginning of your chapter about living the new story. And you, and, um, uh, you quote him, most of what passes for legitimate entertainment is inferior or foolish and only caters to or exploits people's weaknesses. And then um, that, that, that and the rest of the passage sounded so modern to me. And Epictetus, of course, you know, 2,000 years ago, <laughs> same thing. I was, that, I was just, uh, as the Brits would say, gobsmacked um, when, when, I, when I read that. That's and, why I put it in the book. <laughs> Good. Yeah, it was, yeah that, I, that was a uh, so pertinent. But 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 the point is that is that is that you're saying that that we have the habit of feeding ourselves impression food um, that maintains the old story, is uh, to use the language of, of the book. Yeah, exactly. And we don't have to. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and there's something. I, one thing that occurred to me uh, that as I was reading, particularly that section and other sections of the book that speak to how do we become disconnected with our inner resources. And I've noticed, you know, in, in our communities where there's an odd kind of emergence of kind of paranoia and progressive thinking uh, where people get very, 
caught up in sinister theories about what's going on with the virus, uh, you know, the coronavirus and the government's going to force vaccination of everybody. And, you know, there's all these terrible things. And I realize that that's, that's really coming out of a vacuum of people not having a positive, affirmative vision that they can lead into in their lives. Yeah. And that, you know, one of the contributions that you provide here besides just modeling this in the book is the appendices in the books have a number of resources. Yeah. And, and I, I just, I kind of thought about, you know, when I think about what someone in a fever dream of conspiracy theories creates for themselves by going to YouTube and just sort of associating mm-hmm. to the next video and the next video and how different that would be if, if, they went to the websites that you mentioned, like the the good news sites or you know the the sites that actually focus on a real balance of possibility. That it would be a very different diet. Yes, absolutely, student. And I think that we just have to do this progressively. Just uh, keep on making these resources available, using them ourselves. You know, whether it be nonviolent news or waging nonviolence or any of them and keep on resorting to them. I mean, I I remember when I was in grade school, my family was the last family on our block to get a television set, which infuriated me in those days, because now I really look back. (laughs) Your family was progressive early on. (laughs) And I didn't know it. I didn't know it. Now I bless you, Dad, for doing that. But uh, I noticed how I would go to school and all my friends would talk about the latest episode of Blah Blah, and I had no idea what they were talking about. So uh, I think if more of us uh, patronize those alternative media and talk about them, it will become the culture in the way that the old stuff, the negative stuff, has become the culture. Yeah, I mean, it, it suggests to me like a... Uh, uh promoting a 30 day media challenge for people uh, you know, to say, here, here's a list of media to go to exclusively for 30 days. And after 30 days, see how you feel. Yep. Well, what you just said, Stuart, is a great advantage, a great advance over what people will use you usually said, which is go on a media fast period. Right. There's no, no alternatives. And so, you know, a real, a real cultural disconnect. But what you're saying that we can now say, because there are these alternatives available, that's really advantageous. We're not saying don't watch television. We say we know don't go on the internet. I would say don't watch television actually. <laughs> don't go on the internet. Don't read this kind of book. Instead, go to these websites and read this kind of book. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the comments you made earlier that that. Uh, intrigued me is this idea of a, I think you said a board game, yes. a third harmony board game. Mm-hmm. I, I, and what, what I thought of when you said that was, um, you know, in the last gen, ah, we're, uh, listeners may now know that we get, we get to see the preview of the cover. The Meta Center's Cosmic Peace Force. That's right. Mission yeah. Harmony three. That's right. Right. <laughs> right. So, um, so, but I was thinking about um, how there have been a proliferation of games in the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years um, that are not simply um, uh, shoot 'em up 
war game sorts of things, but uh, people uh, building things or creating cities or, or economies, that sort of thing. And so can you describe the, um, the game a little bit for our listeners? Uh, yeah, a little. It's the part of the Third Harmony Project that I've had the least to do with uh, because I'm not of a generation that knows a board game from a hole in the wall. <laughs> but uh, but it, uh, we hope that this game will actually be, uh, first of all, an, exer- an exercise in cooperation, mm-hmm. as some games are. Second of all, a learning experience, because, you know, you turn up these cards and they give you challenges, and mm-hmm. each of those is designed to introduce you to a nonviolent principle mm-hmm. or an aspect of the new story. And thirdly, it actually is hopefully serving as a kind of training. Because, you know, you are training yourself to work cooperatively with other people on a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, all those things have been built into the game. And what we're trying to do now is get people to sign on to buy one so that we can build up enough uh, capital there to to produce the ma- uh, mass market instead of mm, uh, but yeah we're hoping that people will get together play the game and that will actually lead to a, a uh, an informed discussion of how to shift the paradigm and how nonviolence can solve the problems that we're facing got it so so um also, getting back to the movie that you talked about uh, that will yeah. uh, be available next month. How will it be available? How can our listeners access <laughs> it in a month or whenever it, whenever it actually, as they say yeah. nowadays, drops? <laughs> <laughs> well, at this point, I think I have to say, well, maybe two things. One is just be in touch with us because we haven't really finalized our distribution plan yet. Okay. But the other thing is... It is going to be in a couple of film festivals, one in Orlando and uh, one in New Mexico. Okay. No, Colorado, excuse me. And the other thing is that what we're almost certain we'll be doing is allowing people to organize a community screening. Hmm. So, of course, now a lot of this stuff has to be online, unfortunately. But whatever format you can use... If you organize a community screening, we'll try and work out a cooperative relationship with you where, you know, both parties will get some income from it Mm -hmm. and also, you know, be able to start playing a role in getting a story out there, as Stuart was saying. So, yeah, that's uh, for now. If you know about a film festival in your locale, your area where you think this might fit, uh, if you want to just start a community screening with a group, uh, or if uh, you just want to see the film, get in touch with us at metacenter.org, info at metacenter.org, and we will have that information for you shortly. Excellent. Yeah. So, so you know, the last uh, chapter of the book was a call to action. And... Yep. Uh, I guess I want to invite you in the the remaining few minutes that we have to elaborate on a call to action for so for people listening to this conversation and uh, who feel something sparked within that 
here's a big worthy project that they can somehow contribute to. Um, what are some of the calls to action that uh, you can recommend for people to yeah. support this program and to uh, mm -hmm. contribute to it? Well, the first thing would be to trot down to many rivers, books, and tea and buy. That was very good. <laughs> yes, thank you. And, and you guys did not pay me to say that, but I am. No. Uh, and, um, you know, then um, it doesn't necessarily mean you're jumping on board with us, but in looking around, using if if they're useful to you using some of our resources to inform the work that you feel passionately called to do and you know you look around the roadmap there are these different sectors where do you think your best contribution could be made get some kind of sense of your own strengths and weaknesses that's what that inner circle should help you do and go to some project that you feel passionate about and I think it would be helpful to be able to put your pet project on hold sometimes while you're working on something else that you can come back to your pet project with renewed force and with a better context. So that would help to break down kind of the silos in which people are operating now. Mm -hmm. But mm. I think the main, the main contribution of the book is to have an overarching paradigm that helps us understand how these projects fit in to one thing. That they're intersectional is almost too too weak of a word to describe it. They are all part of one force. And so then from there, being able to choose which part is most appropriate for you to act in. Mm -hmm. And I cited a couple of examples of what you might call meta projects. Uh, for example, in the the institution of what's called unarmed civilian peacekeeping uh, there are about 20 or 30 organizations doing that in the world and they're very very active right now because we need people to be monitors of protests and stuff a big thing going on today in martinez where they had to send out an emergency call for people to get training and go in there as peace team uh monitors um those are okay. So we have all these different organizations doing it, but one organization, Nonviolent Peace Force, which is global and has relatively greater uh, budget, is putting together, I think it's almost finished now, a series of meetings, one on each inhabited continent, to pull together all the groups that are doing this one activity and pool the best practices that mm -hmm. they've learned. What, what should we avoid? What should we do? And so to make it into a movement and not just a set of isolated activities working in one region or another. And this is something that I wanted to see happening 25, 30 years ago. And I'm very, very happy that it is happening now. And I think what Meta is trying to do is to facilitate it by explaining the framework into which it all fits. Yeah. Every, everybody has an intuitive sense for that, but I think we need to do more right now. We need to spell it out. So by spelling it out, the different parts become more conscious of their... Uh, uh, their relationship. Their relationship and their connectedness. Exactly. 
Exactly. And, and think of how that dignifies and enhances the importance of your work. Right. If I'm, if I'm just saving the whales, okay, you know, it has a lot of value for whales. But if I am saving the whales as an illustration of the sanctity of life, then that enhances the scope and the value of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's like bringing to the surface or bringing to conscious awareness the yeah. the hidden drivers that are are tying all of these actions together. Yeah, well put, well put. And I think up until now, people may not have really been able to articulate what those hidden drivers are. And so now you have modern science and ancient spirituality converging on the uh, the, the, the the spelling out the articulating of those drivers out of together. Right. And I, I think that, that that, I mean, that's a good demonstration of what meta, the meta and the meta center <laughs> uh, in, with one T as opposed to two T's is yeah. that, that it's a, that part of the new story is awakening us to our connection to, and all the things that we're doing as world servers to do it with a, connected consciousness, which I think then brings resources together and brings coherence and activities together and even creates a pressure on the on governments to uh, accommodate these ideals. Yep, and nobody is talking about stopping what you're doing and switching over to that articulation and just being a storyteller, but to be able to be a storyteller in words as well as actions. Yeah, is what the call to action tries to present. So we have uh, come to close to the end of our time at uh, this point. We appreciate uh, your patience with some of the uh, technical glitches, but uh, this has been a really wonderful uh, exploration of your work and and the uh, work of the Meta Center more more broadly. As and well. it, maybe you could just quickly let people know if they want to connect with the. Uh, Meta Center, what you know, is uh, there's a website for that that can, yeah, there's actually a website for the book, which is under my personal name, and then there's a website for the movie, which is called uh, thirdharmony.org. One word, thirdharmony.org. But and the main, the mother website is metacenter.org. And as you pointed out, this is meta with two t's, yeah, <laughs> the one that means compassion not the one that means beyond, but you know, either way will work. But for <laughs> web purposes, it has to be two T's. Yeah. So metacenter.org, you know, info at metacenter.org. Or if you want to get to me personally, uh, which may, may take me a little time to get back to you, but Michael at metacenter.org. Uh, those, that would be the ways that we have right now. It used to be, we had a very nice little office in Petaluma, but can't do that anymore <laughs> yeah it's well the, the world continues to change and uh yeah. and we are grateful for your efforts to uh, direct that change in a positive direction through this book the third for the third harmony and um the other aspects of the project well thank you so much uh rob uh i i feel a big pat on the back and i'm I'm going down to the meditation hall right now, and I'll make sure that I don't get too elated. 
<laughs> it's okay if you rise up above the cushion, you know, just a little bit. <laughs> it's okay to be elated, just don't be attached to it. That's right. There you go. Rise, don't try to rise with it. Yeah. Well, you know, this has been, in fact, a wonderful conversation also from my end. And, you okay. know, I've been on my fair share of interviews, and uh, this really has an outstanding feel for me. And I hope it benefits a lot of our listeners. I'm, I'm sure it will. I mean, the, the, you so the clarity of your message and the inspiration that you bring is really uh, uh, something we're very grateful for. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm so pleased to hear that. And I am emboldened to carry right on. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much uh, on behalf of the Mystical Positivist. Thank you uh, from one Mystical Positivist to another. <laughs> <laughs> You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Michael Nagler, founder of the Meta Center for Nonviolence in 1982, and author of The Third Harmony, Nonviolence and the New Story of Human Nature. The Meta Center provides educational resources on the safe and effective use of nonviolence. As Professor Emeritus of Classics and Comparative Literature at UC Berkeley, Michael co-founded the Peace and Conflict Studies program. He is a student of Eknath Eshoran, who founded the Blue Mountain Center of Meditation, and he has lived at the center's ashram in Marin County since 1970. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Anne Sweet, Sydney-based artist and spiritual exemplar of living in the world from a point of view of transcendence. Of her spiritual path, she writes... I had a change of identity about 15 years ago. This was very liberating for me, but I wasn't exactly sure what it was or what had happened. By then I had left my teacher and was pretty much done with spiritual life. After 30 years I'd had enough and been through enough. I had learned to take care of my interior world and over time had stabilized my condition and had no desire to get involved with another teacher in the hope of having my remaining questions answered. In a sense, I forgot all about spirituality. My friends by then were mostly not in the spiritual world, and my partner is a man of science and somewhat mystified by all of this. Meanwhile, I was extremely engaged with my work as a visual artist and had a busy exhibiting schedule, so my focus was elsewhere. I rarely, if ever, spoke of spiritual matters, and although I treasured my ongoing interior experience, I felt no need to talk about it, even with my few spiritually-minded friends. About five years ago, I began to become very curious about my state. I was reading the masters again in a casual way, and their words seemed to match my experience. I believed there was an excellent chance I was fooling myself, however, and it became important to find out. I contacted a well-known Vedanta teacher who I trusted with my story, and he very kindly confirmed my understanding and helped clear my remaining questions. I was satisfied. After that, spiritual ice slipped even further into the background. A few weeks ago, I started to become very interested and excited by Amir Freiman's posts on Facebook. I contacted him, and we began a lively discussion. He was very enthusiastic about my condition and asked me to participate in the research for his PhD. This was strange to me and quite surprising. I had never given a name to my state and didn't think my understanding was anything special, but he insisted it was. As we began the formal interviews, to which you kindly responded to excerpts of on Facebook, it was a revelation to me that I could talk about these matters with some assurance and hopefully some accuracy. 
My natural reserve and liking for privacy dissolved when you and others responded so heartfully and sensitively to the posts. I came out of the spiritual closet and for the first time spoke openly as myself in public in response. It was both terrifying and liberating. A few days later, you asked me to join you on your radio program. So tune in for that show on Saturday, July 25th from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.